Welcome to Cross Offense. I'm your host, Pastor Brian Wolfman, the pastor of Hope Lutheran Church in Aurora, Colorado. And we get together every Monday afternoon to rejoice in the Lord's Word, to delight in His doctrine, to search the Scriptures and find in them our life and our joy and our peace. We want to we want to have our imagination set on fire by the Lord's Word. We want it to captivate our mind, our heart, and we want our conscience uh, to be comforted. And that's what we're going to get after this next hour. We're going we're gonna to talk a little bit about sanctification in the first segment, and then Pastor Sean Denzer is going to join us to, to bring, I don't know what, I, I said, hey, bring something interesting, let's talk about it. And so, uh, so that's coming up for us as well. If you can hang on and endure my, my rambling for the next 17 minutes, that's what's going to happen. But I want to talk to you at the beginning of this show here. What I would like to talk about uh, is the doctrine of sanctification. What does that word mean and how do we experience it in our own lives? How do we experience sanctification? Well, so first we want to talk about what it means. And, 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 and far from being some, well, one of these kind of old and boring theological topics, the topic of sanctification is really quite a, a wonderful thing because we realize, remember how when the people in the Gospels were looking at Jesus and they said he does all things well, that Jesus does everything that he does well? Well, not only does he save us, he, he justifies, declare us to be righteous and holy. He does that well. But he also comes along and blesses us in this life and gives us the opportunity to love and to serve our neighbor. He does that well also. So the Lord's bringing us the gift of eternal life. That's, that's great. And the Lord bringing us the gift of a life that's full of love and service to God and to the neighbor. That also he does well. Now, sanctification means it comes from the, the, Latin, the Latin sanctus, which means holy. In fact, we, we sing this uh, every Sunday in the liturgy. We get together and say, okay, now it's time to sing the Sanctus. And when we say that, the first words that come out of our mouth are the, are the words of the angels that we heard first in Isaiah. Holy, 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 Lord God of Sabaoth, heaven and earth are full of your glory. So, the, so the, when we say it's time to sing the Sanctus, we say, we say it's, time to, uh, it's time to say holy. So the word sanctification means, as, as close as we can get to a definition in, in English, it means to be made holy. It, it means to be, I mean, it is just one word in the Latin and also in, in the Greek. We, we have to combine a noun and a verb, make the verb holy, the, the noun. But it would be something like holify or holificate or something like that. We just don't have the English word to say it, so we have to say to make holy. And when we talk about sanctification, we want to remember that there's a distinction that we can make, and this is really helpful, that we talk about sanctification in the broad sense and sanctification in the narrow sense. In the broad sense, sanctification is everything that God the Holy Spirit does to make and declare us holy. It starts even with the birth of Jesus, with his death and his resurrection. That's where this begins, and it continues in, in that the Lord baptizes us. He converts us through the preaching of the Word. He, he gives us all the gifts that we need uh, for this life and for the life to come. In fact, in the broad sense, our, our sanctification includes the resurrection, when on the last day, Jesus will stand on the earth and he will call our name and we will come forth from the grave and we will stand with him in the resurrection forever. And it's amazing. So that in the broad sense, basically, holy uh, sanctification means everything that the Holy Spirit does, everything from beginning to, to end to bring to us the holiness of God. But when we talk about sanctification, we normally are talking about sanctification in the narrow sense. And that's what I want to talk to you guys about today. And that is the good works that follow conversion, the good works of the Christian life. Sanctification, then, in the broad sense, excludes justification. 
God justifies us by grace through faith. He completely, he comes and he, and, and he, he declares us to be righteous. He takes the holiness and the righteousness of Jesus and he puts on, he puts that right onto us and our sanctification has, has nothing to do with it. It's justification and sanctification, when we talk about them in the narrow sense, we have to make this clean distinction between the two. And say, look, we are justified by grace through faith. And then, and then once we are justified, once we're converted, once we're baptized, once we're adopted into the family of God, then the Lord begins, God the Holy Spirit begins this work of sanctification in us. Now what's interesting about this conversation about good works is that at the beginning, when the Lutherans started being Lutherans, uh, the opponents of the Lutheran Church said that they, that they, they, that us, we Lutherans, that we forbid good works, that we talked bad about good works. In fact, they, that's what they said. They said the Lutherans forbid the doing of good works. Now, how could that possibly be? I mean, how could we, how could we look at our teaching and say that we forbid good works? But there's a reason why this accusation was leveled at the Lutherans of forbidding or being the enemies of good works. And it was because the Lutherans were able to recognize the danger of good works. Now this is a this is a fine point. I I don't think it needs to be too fine, but it's a point that we ought to meditate on that the Lutherans could see that there was a danger to to good works. And that danger is that we are tempted with good works unlike anything else in this world that we're tempted to think that our good works save us. That we're saved by our goodness, that we make it into heaven because we're good people. Now it, what's what's amazing is that this is seems to be true across the board. I remember a few years ago when I was a baby pastor, I took the video camera out uh, to the streets and I was asking people questions. What's the gospel? What's the law? How, how, will you, what happens when you die? Will you go to heaven? And almost everybody said they'd go, either they didn't know if they'd go to heaven or, or they, they would go to heaven. And I'd say, well, what, how do you get to heaven? How do you make it? And they would say, well, by being a good person, by doing good works. Now, now this is so this answer is so typical. This idea that we are that we are saved by our good works is is um, is is almost assumed that we forget that it's an amazing sort of thing. I mean, why why would we say that our good works are going to get us to heaven? I mean, why not saying, "Well, I own a llama; that's going to get me to heaven," or "I'm five foot eight; that's going to get me to heaven," or "My name has three vowels in it; that's going to get me to heaven." I mean, why, why, why when we say the thing that's going to get us to heaven, why do we look at our good works? Why is it that we are constantly drawn to the good works as that thing which is going to make us acceptable to God? It's, when you think about it, it's just, as, it's just as likely that you could flip a coin and make it into heaven or that you'd make it into heaven by having brown hair or by being bald or by being a woman instead of a man or by being, by being born south of the equator or whatever. I mean, good works are just about as likely to get you into heaven as anything else is. And yet when our mind starts to ask, what do I need to have to get into heaven? We are drawn like moths to the flames to the phenomenon of good works, that good works are inherently strangely but inherently trustable when it comes to the question of salvation now the old theologians have recognized this they've, they've recognized that we are attracted to our good works to save us and they've and they've identified that attractiveness of good works with a particular theological term they've they've called it the opinio legis the opinion of the law the idea the idea that if God is mad at me because of my sin, 
if he's upset and going to judge me because of my sin, then he must surely then be pleased with me because of my good works. You see how that works? That's the, that's the native theological logic of your sinful flesh and of my sinful flesh and of every person born of Adam's sinful flesh. It's, the, it's like the default operating, theological operating system that we're born with. Like, you know, when the, when the phone, when you go to get a new cell phone, it comes out of the box and it's got the operating system there and it's just out of the box, out of the can, this is what it is. This is how, this is how our sinful flesh thinks out of the box. It follows the opinio legis. It says that if I'm, if I'm bad because of my sin, then I must be good because of my good works. Now, this is a faulty theological logic. It's wrong, but it is pernicious and it sticks to us. It sticks to everyone. And it becomes the basis of, of, of basically every religion. Every world religion comes down to the opinio legis. God will be happy with me because of my good works. It's just good works look different, you know, not cutting your hair or carrying a dagger around or saying prayers so many times a day or whatever. It's all the, going on pilgrimage. It's different forms of good works, but it all comes down to the good works. If I do enough good works, then God will be pleased with me. If I don't, he'll be mad. In fact... In fact, I think it's a very interesting phenomenon that even our atheist friends who don't have a religion at all, who say that there's no God, still have the opinio legis. They're still trying to be good. I, I went to the Denver area atheist group a couple of years ago, and they were they were they were busy starting a nonprofit organization called Atheists for Good. Why? Why were they so obsessed with doing good? I mean, they were trying to make the argument that you don't have to be Christian to do good. And I went to them and I said, I made, I said, you guys, uh, the reason why you're not Christian is you're too good. You think that you've, you think that you're good people. That's the Christian. The, the Christian faith begins with the declaration that I am a poor, miserable sinner, that I cannot, by my own reason or strength, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ to come to Him. That I cannot be good enough for God. That left to myself, I am a, I am damned. That when, when it comes to the court of divine justice, you know, when you go into a court, the first thing you have to do is you have to make a plea. Are you guilty or are you innocent? And we, we, when we stand before God and we make a plea, our plea is not that we're innocent. Our plea is not that we're good. The Christian plea is that we're sinners. I, a poor, miserable sinner, confess unto thee all my sins and iniquities with which I have ever, uh, which would, I have ever sinned against thee and deserve thy temporal and eternal punishment. We, we stand before God and we plead guilty, not innocent, not good. I, I, I told these atheists that your problem is that you think that you're too good. That you, that you don't need a savior. Christians, Christians know that we're, de we're in desperate need of a savior. Jesus says that the sick aren't, the, that the, the, those who are well have no need of a doctor, but those who are sick. Now, Jesus knows that everybody is sick, but not everybody knows it. This is the beginning of Christian wisdom, to know that we are sick that we are dead in trespasses and sins, that we're in desperate need of a Savior, and that we cannot do anything to save ourselves. Now, this was so clear in the preaching of the Reformation. Did you think I forgot about that we're talking about good works? This was so clear, this idea that we're saved by grace through faith, and that not of ourselves, it's not of works, so that no one can boast, Ephesians 2, that the Lutherans are able to recognize the danger of good works and say that our, our works have nothing to do with our salvation. Our works have nothing to do with our being declared righteous by God. 
that that works are completely excluded from this article of justification. That's the kind of language that the Lutherans would use, and they would pick up on texts like Romans four five to the one who look to the one who does not work but believes on him who justifies the ungodly. His faith is accounted to righteousness, so that works are now excluded. It's faith alone, and that and that uh, the the alone of faith and the alone of grace that came out of the Reformation was to exclude works from salvation. That's why the alone was there. It was like a fence to make sure that our works and our efforts didn't get in there. So the opponents of the Lutherans look at this and they said, hey, look, at you guys You guys are enemies of works. You guys are forbidding works. You guys are saying that works shouldn't be done. And the Lutherans heard that accusation and they said, no, no, you, you could not be farther from the truth. In fact, they said that not only do we teach that works are necessary, but we teach how works are to be done. We have a place for good works, a profound place for good works. But the place is not in our salvation. The place is in our life of service that comes out of salvation. That we are not saved by good works, but we're saved, in fact, for good works. That's how St. Paul talks about it in Ephesians 2, save, uh, that, you, that you are saved for the works prepared beforehand in you in Christ, for you in Christ Jesus. That we're not saved because of works, but because we're saved, we do good works. And in this way, the, the Lutherans were able to pick up on a key understanding of the Scriptures, and that is that our good works are the fruits of faith. The fruits of faith. That, that you have the tree first, and then the fruits grow from the tree. And if you have a good tree, then you have good fruits. And if you have a bad tree, you have bad fruit. Jesus talks about this. In fact, Jesus likes to preach this picture. He preaches it at least twice in the Gospel of Matthew. And he says, do you go and you look for figs from thorns? No. I mean, you would never go and look for fruit from a thorn bush. I mean, that kind of bush doesn't bring forth fruit. So, what, so if you want figs, what do you do? You have to change the tree. You have to, find, you have to get a good tree. In fact, in a profound way, the Bible, the scriptures talk about the good works of the Christian as the fruit of repentance. So remember, repentance has two parts. Stay with me on this one. This is important. In fact, I would love, someone take this down, uh, I would love for my gravestone to say, here lies Pastor Wolfmuller waiting for the resurrection. He always taught that repentance had two parts, contrition and faith. I mean, this is all really... I think I have to teach in the world, and, and, and so it's, it's fantastically important that repentance has these two parts, contrition and faith. That the law, the Holy Spirit, brings the law to us to show us our sin, and we are contrite. We're sorry about this. We recognize that we're such poor, miserable sinners, and we confess our sins, and we say, man, oh man, I am a poor, miserable sinner. I've sinned against God and the whole world. I deserve God's wrath and punishment. And then the Holy Spirit brings the gospel to us, and, and we believe it. We believe the promise of the gospel. It's really quite incredible that we believe the promise of God's mercy and the promise of God's kindness. And then what follows from that, the fruit of that repentance, is good works. Faith grabs a hold of the Holy Spirit so that the Holy Spirit lives in, uh, in us. And the Holy Spirit doesn't move in so he can take a nap. The Holy Spirit comes so that we love and serve our neighbor. We understand that the Christian is set apart not, not by good works, but for good works. And we pray that the Holy Spirit would continue to come to us to give us that confidence. That 
is our Christian sanctification, to delight that the Lord Jesus works that in us. I'm Pastor Brian Wolfmuller. You're listening to Cross Defense. We're going to go to the break. we got Gus on the line. We'll talk to him when we come back, and we'll grab uh, Pastor Sean Denzer and see what he has to bring to the conversation. Thanks for being part of this, this Monday afternoon, this show Cross Defense, where we're talking about the Scriptures and rejoicing in it. Stay with us. Short break. Stay with us through the break. We'll be right back and carry on. This is the day which the Lord has made. For the lonely and homebound, for the grieving and dying, and for all those who are afflicted in body, mind, and spirit, especially for... Join us for a live broadcast of Chapel at the LCMS International Center weekdays at 10 a.m. on KFUO. I'm Gary Duncan, the General Manager of Worldwide KFUO. We promote our various programs. We ask you to listen to your favorite show. We ask you to support our broadcast ministry, and we thank you for that support. But maybe we don't ask you to pray for us as much as we should. Please pray for the staff, management, radio hosts, and volunteers here at Worldwide KFUO. Pray that the message of salvation through Christ is heard clearly by listeners around the world. Pray that we continue to reach into those areas that are hostile to the Word of God. Pray that KFUO continues to reach those people desperately needing to hear the good news message. And pray that God continues to bless us financially through the gifts we need to continue our broadcast ministry. Thank you for listening, supporting, and praying for Worldwide KFUO. You truly are appreciated. We are the messenger of good news. AM850 in St. Louis, worldwide at KFUO.org. KFUO is faithful to the Word of God. Listen daily to KFUO as we focus on salvation through Christ Jesus. Generations have heard KFUO proclaim the good news through our talk programs, music programs, and worship services. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. KFUO, faithful, scriptural, Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. We are the messenger of good news, KFUO. Hey, I told you that was a short break. Welcome back to Cross Defense. I'm Pastor Brian Wolfmuller of Hope Lutheran Church in Aurora, Colorado. And uh, we just finished talking about sanctification. I thought Gus was on the line, but it, that was Stephanie telling me that the guest is on the line. Our guest, Pastor Sean. Oh, but, oh, but I should say, by the way, if you want to join us for this conversation, you can feel free. You can, the, the, let's see, the Twitter is at KFUO Radio, at B. Wolfmuller. That's my Twitter. Or you can call in. If you're in St. Louis, the phone number is 314 314- Eight two one zero eight five zero or anywhere in the world one eight hundred seven three zero two seven two seven. I'm going to say those again. You should pull over, write them down, put them in your speed dial so you can join us anytime. If you're in St. Louis, three four one. Wait, three one four eight two one zero eight five zero or anywhere in the world one eight hundred seven three zero two seven two seven. My guest is Pastor Sean Denzer, who's going to bring something curious. Pastor Denzer, how are you? Hey, doing great. You serve a couple of congregations, is that right? I can't, I can't remember where you are. You've got to yep. remind me. i got a dual parish. I've got a Trinity Lutheran Church in Great Bend, North Dakota, the oldest Missouri Synod congregation in North Dakota. Wow. And Peace Church in Barney, just a little bit younger than them. 
Hey, fantastic. And um, and you've got something for us to consider today. What do you got? Sure. Well, we were talking earlier uh, about, well, I think I can sum up our conversation as the challenge of trying to say the same thing, which is what the word confession, confessing the faith, means. But to say the same thing, sometimes in a new way. And there's there's lots of dangers in that, like maybe you're not actually saying the same thing. Uh, just as there's kind of also the danger, and we could all be using the same words and be a little confused about what we actually mean by them. And it reminded me of an article I had read. Uh, this is an old article now. I, had to, I couldn't even find my hard copy. I had to look it up online. But it was in Lutheran Quarterly, which is a scholarly journal, uh, uh, volume 27, issue 2, and this was in the summer of 2013. starts on page 167 if someone wants to look it up. It was on called Luther and Bootser on the Lord's Supper by Gordon Jensen. And I believe he is a professor up at uh, the ELICIC Seminary in Saskatoon, Canada. Uh, so that would be uh, a sister church of the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, not the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Uh, but he was talking about uh, something called the Wittenberg Concord. The Wittenberg Concord was a meeting and an agreement signed by Lutheran theologians, pastors, including Martin Luther, uh, Philip Melanchthon, Bugenhagen, Justice Jonas, Kruseger, and one of my favorite guys, Urbanus Regius. We could talk about him as an interesting guy some other time. And uh, Reformed uh, theologians uh, like uh, Bootser, was maybe the main one, Martin Bootser, and then two Wolfgangs, Wolfgang Capito and Wolfgang Musculus. Uh, Man, and Musculus, that's what uh, my nickname was in high school. Well, yeah. <laughs> hey, what, when was this signed? I forgot about this, the Wittenberg Concord. This is 1536. 1536, okay. Yeah, and it's, it's kind of at least subsequently thought of as like a Lutheran win. I'll put that in quotes. Uh, got him to confess that the, the Lord's Supper, the body of Christ, is really given and, and presented uh, with the bread. Uh, and it's, um, it's even uh, eaten by those who are uh, unworthy, uh, is, the, is the phrase. Uh, and, but actually, after the fact, there was some discovery that maybe, even though we had agreed in the words, there may not have been total agreement in the meaning of it. But as it turns out, it didn't matter much because the Reformed had thought they had given up way too much and didn't really accept it as much as the Lutherans did. It gets huh. quoted in the Formula Concord, so our, our viewers might, listeners might be a little familiar with it. Now, that's anyway, a, so, so this is really an interesting phenomenon, is that, I mean, just to realize that at the time of the Reformation, so it starts in some ways in Wittenberg, and then everybody's jumping on board, but it's, there's a distinct interest for everybody involved that this does not splinter into a million different confessions and so there's all these attempts at concord or at unity um the, co these colloquies where these different theologians are going to get together and try to get to an agreement uh, one of the, maybe the most famous is with luther and zwingli uh there's all these debates uh, happening and so this is one of those attempts to get them together and then pastor denzer uh straight me out if i'm wrong about this but one of the reasons why um it's so interesting with this one the wittenberg concord is that the question, one of the questions that the Lutherans would ask of the Reformed to sort out the difference on the Lord's Supper had to do with the, with the, what, what happens when an unbeliever comes to the Supper? They, they called it, the question was the manducatio indignorum, the eating of the indignant. And, and so because the Lutherans and the Reformed would use such close language in describing the Lord's Supper, they had to ask these clarifying questions to get to the point of it. And, and you'd say, well, what happens if an unbeliever comes to the Supper? And the Lutherans would say, well, 
what they get is the body and blood because it is the body and the blood. And what the Reformed would say was, well, what you get is bread and wine because it's only faith that gets the body and the blood. Is that is that right? Yeah, that's definitely there. And uh, the only way the Reformed, uh, Bootser in particular, was able to sign on to the Wittenberg Concord is they understood unworthy different. He was like, well, yeah, there are lots of people who are, need to repent because they're sinners still, um, even though they're kind of Christians, too. And uh, so they're unworthy, but they get to come. <laughs> and Luther meant, no, I'm talking about, you know, some atheist wanders in off the street and accidentally gets it put in his mouth, which is pretty amazing to begin with, but he would also get the body of Christ. Not yeah, a, do- a dog sneaks in and grabs... Yeah, the the body and the blood off the altar. What what's there? It's not, it's it is truly the body and blood. It is not dependent upon the faith of the person confessing it. Sure. Okay. Um, so so okay. So that's the Wittenberg Concord, uh, a seeming agreement for the Lutherans and for the Reformed. And this uh, in this article that you're reading, it takes up that topic. And then and what's the point that it's going to build from there? He's kind of making an interesting argument. He's kind of saying uh, Bootser is the real deal. He's pretty great. And Luther, eh, not so good. Why? And he says, Bootser is the more precise theologian. Bootser is the more precise theologian. And the reason is he sticks with one phraseology the whole time. He's very consistent, and he sticks to it. And it's the bread of, or the body of Christ is given with the bread and the wine. Now, a lot of our listeners are familiar with the kind of something attributed to Luther, which is in, with, and under. The art, art, uh, author would say, well, that's a little less precise, of course, and Luther didn't use them together like that. He used them at different times. He'd say, in the bread is Christ's body, or with the bread, or under the bread, we have the body of Christ. That's how the Catechism puts it, I think. Um, and the real point is, Luther doesn't care which one or any of them you use. He's trying to give other expressions to the phrase, this is, this bread is my body. Uh, that there is a union, a, a uni- uh, identification of the body of Christ with the bread, according to his words. And uh, so Luther doesn't much care about that. In fact, in one of his great confessions, uh, the Confession Concerning Christ's Supper, he even kind of says, I'm nervous about using these words in, with, and under because people are going to twist them. I've seen it happen. I think he's referring, in fact, to the very event, um, or the argument with Bootser. And so it's interesting. Uh, do you have time for a couple brief quotes? Yeah, yeah, that's fine. Because and what's and maybe just a point of clarity here that please. I mean, in some ways, we're breaking off into two conversations. Which I'm now interested in both. And so we got to kind of track down one. Okay. One is the conversation about the difference between Luther and and Bootser, Bootser and also the. This conversation about the supper, and then the second is going to be the argument that this article that you're reading is making, and it's going to say one way of doing theology is better than the other way of doing theology. So we kind of have a Lord's Supper question that's a, the Reformation question, and we're going to have a how do you do theology question. Now, now, is this quote that you're going to be is going to be a how to do theology? I'd like to stick for a little bit, for, as, for my own sake maybe, and also for the listeners, on the question of the Lord's Supper first before we go to the quote. Is that going to be all right? Uh, sure, go ahead. It's because I remember when I came, when I was first a baby pastor, I don't know, 13 years ago or whatever, I came here at Hope and I was, I was visiting with someone, we were talking about the Lord's Supper, and I said the body, I, I said the, the bread is the body of Christ and the wine is the blood of Christ, and they said, no, 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 pastor, you're wrong about that. We say the body is in, with, and under the bread, and yeah. the, and the, uh, the blood is in, with, and under the wine. We don't say is, we say in, with, and under. And and the, to this point that you're making is that I think that is sort of the common Lutheran understanding of the Supper. 
so that we're we're a little bit resistant to say the body is the the bread is the body the wine is the blood and they and they were said that's how we I learned it in catechism and I said well okay I that's true the bread and the wine is in with and under but the reason why we say it's in with and other, under is because we want to say that's what it is this is what Jesus said this this is my body uh in fact, I think in this conversation, I remember it is right across the hall in the library there, and the person said, well, where do you get the idea that it is? <laughs> they were, and I said, well, look what Jesus says. This is my body. And they said, oh, yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> I got a, but, I got, hey, I got you, Wolf Mueller. Here's Luther himself in his confession concerning Christ's Supper, right? He says, hey, um, you know, uh, I could not say anything more certain, simpler, and clearer than take, eat, this is my body, because if the text read take, eat, in the bread is my body, or if the text read, with the bread is my body, or under the bread is my body, it immediately begin to rain, hail, and snow, a storm of fanatics crying out, hey, see, there you go. Christ doesn't say this is my body. He says it's in. He says it's with. <laughs> and a raining and hailing a storm of fanatics. If Jesus this said this is my body. Well, that's the very point. Jesus did say this is my body. So we can say in, with, and under, no problem. But we have to worry about the fact that people might actually believe those words, as you just said it, more than the words of Jesus, which which maybe is unclear to our reason how bread is body, because I don't know any other case where that could be true. But that's the very point. And, and if you want to even say that's the mystery of the Lord's Supper, it is, it's revealed to us. It is. And uh, you may not be able to wrap your mind around that is, but certainly wrap your faith and trust around the Lord's promises that don't lie. Yeah, that's great. Now, if you want to, by the way, join us in this conversation, the phone number is 314-821-0850. That's in St. Louis or in anywhere in the world, 1-800-730-2727. Jump in on the conversation. And uh, it'd be, I'd be interested to hear if this is, um, as you're listening along with us, if this is if this is strange for you to uh, to hear that the body is the bread, the bread is the uh, the, the, the bread is the body, the wine is the, the blood is the wine, that this is the language, uh, and, and we are so used to saying in with and under that the word is seems strange to us. That should be the native word. Do you know, by the way, Pastor Denzer, when that, I mean, when that language in with and under became sort of our default, uh, position for regarding the supper? Um, no, I gotta be honest, I don't. Uh, I, I was surprised to read this quote, which is embedded in that paper, uh, actually has Luther using all three together, because I've heard that he never did, um, and maybe I was wrong on that. Uh, it, the words are used separately all over the place. Uh, I'm not sure when it became a catchphrase, uh, but, uh, you know, Luther gets it once. He gets it in the small called articles, and there, the only thing he says about it is, is. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I think that's fantastic. Uh, because And think about when that is, small called articles, 37, it's after this Wittenberg Concord. Luther, I think, is being very careful not to get bogged down in our prepositions. He's going to leave them all out and just put the verb, is. If I remember it also, there's an argument that the later Lutherans are going to use that in, with, and under is a way of saying is. So we say, for example, the Father, the Son is with the Father, the fa- or how do we say it? God is in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. Uh, so mm-hmm. God is in Christ, so that means is. God is Christ. The, the, and so they're going to go through all those prepositions and show how they relate to the, Jesus, to the divine nature. And, and they're, and they're going to extrapolate from that and say, look, when, what we mean when we say that the body is in, with, and under the bread and the wine that it is, it's a way of s- simply clarifying the is that we have from Jesus. Now, there, there's some practical things too, right? I mean, this is, 
it's one of the things that when when we're in church and there's the the bread and the wine and the words of institution have been spoken, we refer to them then as the body and the blood. And and there's a way that we, that, that we can create that we can speak with a great Christian simplicity and say that when Jesus calls us to church, he, he's inviting us to the body and the blood. That we, we, The body and the blood, this is the language that the church is, is taught to you, that Jesus teaches us to use to refer to the supper. It's really quite beautiful and quite simple. Amen. Okay, so now to the quote. Uh, let's see. Let me see how much time we got. We got a, yeah, we got a couple minutes. Let's get to the quote, and then we'll, we'll get to it after the other side of the break. Okay, I want to. Uh, hopefully, uh, I won't go too long. So tell me if I do before the call. No, no problem. Uh, so uh, why is Bootser sticking with? He's very precise. He's going to use the word "with" exclusively as much as possible. Why? Well, he doesn't want to tackle the sacramental union. The very the "is" word. The "is" means a union. It's, it's an identity. Even bread is body. He doesn't want to tackle that because he's afraid if he tackles that, he's going to have to talk about how. There we go off into Roman Catholic land, transubstantiation. How does the bread become the body? We have to introduce a whole, you know, maybe a, a theoretical idea of how that happens. But with comes with, has its own problem. With can mean alongside, right? These things are going parallel to each other, but there's no real connection at all. Uh, that's very close to what Calvin believes, in fact. Uh, it, the the they would say the real presence of Christ is with the bread, but not in any real connection. They're just, it's like two trains driving next to each other. They're driving with each other, right? On different tracks, though. Uh, uh, with also has this advantage, which is very important to Bootser. Uh, the sacramental union Christ is with uh, in the Lord's Supper. And it's not just with the bread and wine, but it's with you and me. He wants to talk about body of Christ even being uh, a, a, a metaphor for the the whole group of Christians gathered together, which is certainly a biblical metaphor. The question is, does that have to do with the Lord's Supper, or is or is that a result from the Lord's Supper? Right. Um, so uh, uh, here's then I think the quote, if we have time for it. Sure. Okay, uh, and, and this is not Bootser, but this is uh, the uh, Gordon Jensen speaking about it. He says, for Bootser. If the words in a phrase were accepted, like with, uh, then complete agreement was reached. It goes on. If participants understood those precise words in different ways, the words which form the basis of the concord, the agreement, are foundational. Uh, still, on the other hand, Luther's approach was different. He was more concerned with the intent and the implications behind the words. Well, I get it. I think I got it. So that um, what he's saying is that is that Boozer was he was just putting out a formula, and if you can agree to the formula, whatever way you get to those words, whatever way you can kind of understand the definitions to get to that, and then you can agree you can agree with it. That's fine. But Luther was different. He didn't he did not care if you just agreed to a particular statement. For him, it was important that you agreed on what was meant by that you had to agree on the definition of the words you had to agree on everything behind it and that one and that this creates two different kinds of unity is that mm -hmm. that's the oh, idea yeah. and, and and here's the question you might just ponder for a second which one is more useful and then you have to define what makes it useful right but if your if your goal is in fact to simply get over disagreement I think I think he's right. Being precise in your language and sticking to a formula, no matter what people think it believe, no, no matter what, how much difference there is in what we understand by that formula, having the words down will get the job done better. 
Ah, so this is the question. We're, this is a perfect, actually, actually a perfect time to go to the break. So we're going to talk about this. What, what is more helpful to Christian unity? To have the same words, is that enough? Or is it that we have to agree on what the words mean uh, behind it? Uh, what do you think? If you want to jump in on the conversation, feel free to join us uh, at B. Wolfmuller at KFUO Studio on Twitter. Uh, you can give us a call, 314, if you're in St. Louis, 31428. Man, I can't get these numbers right. Let's start over. 314-821-0850 or anyone in the, anywhere in the world, 800-730-2727. I'm Pastor Brian Wolfmuller of Hope Lutheran Church. Pastor Sean Danzer is my guest. You're listening to Cross Defense. Stay with us. We'll be right back. I'm World Lutheran News Digest host Kip Allen. Social media is in the news a lot today. The Lutheran Church Missouri Senate is making use of this new technology to spread the gospel message. LCMS social media manager Peter Slayton and KFUO digital media specialist Sarah Golseth are my guests. World Lutheran News Digest may be heard every Wednesday at 2.30 and Saturday at 9.30 on Worldwide KFUO. Given, it's a word we seem to hear less in our world today. We believe the word of God as it teaches Christ is given for you. That's what we at KFUO bring you. Christ for you anytime, anywhere. Find the Give Now button at kfuo.org to support this mission. kfuo.org or call 1-800-844-0524 to make your gift today. Journalist, minister, missionary, and Quaker, English-born William Penn is best known for his royal charter in 1681 to form a new colony in America, Pennsylvania, a refuge for religious freedom. While managing his father's property in Ireland, Penn met Quaker preachers who inspired his conversion to the Society of Friends. And in the years that followed, he was imprisoned for his writings in a lifelong fight for persecuted religious groups. William Penn relied heavily on the Bible as the source for his prolific writings over the years. Shortly before his death on July 30th, 1718, he said his goodbyes to friends with words paraphrased from Psalm 121, 7 and 8 and Hebrews 13, 20. My love is with you. The Lord preserve you and remember me in the everlasting covenant. Brought to you by Museum of the Bible. Hey, welcome back to Cross Defense. I'm Pastor Brian Wolfmuller. Pastor of Hope Lutheran Church in Aurora, Colorado. I'm joined by Pastor Sean Denzer, who is pastor of a couple of churches. The oldest church from North Dakota. Is that what you said? Yep, oldest existing Missouri St. Congregation. When did you guys uh, start? 1875. 1875. Wow. Dry That's great. How many, how many uh, pastors have been there? Oh, I should know that, but uh, I don't. All I know is we had a great pastor, Hink, uh, for a long time, uh, spanned the founding of the, uh, when North Dakota became a state, and uh, I think he died in the 40s, maybe, and uh, uh, he used to be the president of the, I think it was Dakota, Montana district, uh, so we're ancient Missouri Synod history, but uh, quite an amazing guy, and uh, seems to be a pretty faithful guy from what I've read. 
That's great. All right. Well, let's. So I'm going to go back and try to set up this question because um, what we are being uh, with the with the display from the Wittenberg Concord and this conflict between Luther and Bucer. What we were put. What has been put before us is two different ways of thinking about theology and thinking about unity in theology. Now, let's just maybe say there that that every Christian has a desire for theological unity. It is a it is a Christian desire that the church would be united and also a Christian desire that the church would simply not just be united in name but that it but but that there would be a true unity a unity that comes from the word a unity that comes in fact from doctrine I remember this is an amazing story uh, that I that I got to I got to witness this conversation between Richard John Newhouse and uh, Dr. Kurt Marquardt at the seminary this was an it was it was a symposium we're sitting at the seminary now both of these gentlemen uh richard john newhouse and uh kurt marquardt dr kurt marquardt are are dead now um uh, for so for those of you who do not know dr newhouse well he was a lutheran pastor they were roommates i think at at seminary they were classmates at seminary but uh but uh, richard newhouse went from being a lutheran pastor to being a roman catholic he was very outspoken in the public square in fact that's what he was uh known for uh speaking in the public square that's what his i think is the name of his article was that he that he had there in the journal that he started uh first things and um and he was especially outspoken regarding issues of life the sanctity of life fighting against abortion and so forth and as far as that is concerned he was a he was a uh he did a lot of good works but theologically uh to abandon the gospel and the doctrine of justification for what he was teaching and what the catholic church was teaching was a really um a tragedy dr marquardt on the other hand was a professor at the seminary when i was there at the seminary he's since died gone to glory uh with a beautiful confessor of the faith and these two guys were talking about the unity of the church and i walked up and i and i in fact i think i got to ask the question i kind of threw it into the middle of the conversation uh, what is the unity of the church and dr newhouse said well the church simply finds herself as one <laughs> some some r- sort of vague answer like this and he says you know just like uh the, the like a body has many parts but is one so the church is it has an, a, a, a unity that's given according to its nature by the Holy Spirit as a creation of God or something like this. And then, and, and I looked at Dr. Marquardt, and he was kind of shaking his head. <laughs> and, he's, and he said, the church is one in the word, in the word. Jesus says, I pray that they may be one. Sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. It's the truth of God's word that is the unity of the church. It was really it's to, so to see those two things put on contrast like that was really, it was phenomenal. In fact, oh man! Now the, the other passage I think that's great, uh, and it's easy for me to remember because it's both in First Corinthians. First Corinthians one ten is where Paul says, "I don't want there to be any divisions in the church." And then by chapter eleven of the very same letter, he's saying, "I understand there are divisions among you." And I, I believe it in part. It's got to be, it's necessary, in fact, right, to know who's genuine among you, right? How can those two things stand together? We want to be one, and there might actually be divisions that have to be. Because what is it based in? The Word. It's got to be. Yeah, the Word. So so this desire for unity, and a desire for unity in the Word, is the, is the it's the, this is a, uh, the right and good and godly impulse of all Christians, that the church would be united. But how do you get there? And so what this article that you've brought is, what's the name of the article again, by the way? It's, uh, it's from uh, Lutheran Quarterly, the summer of 2013, and it's Gordon Jensen's Lutheran Bootser on the Lord's Supper. 
Okay, so what this article has presented is that, that, that there's two ways of pushing towards that unity. There's the Bootser way and the Luther way. And the Bootser way is to get to words that we can agree on. And the Luther way is to get to, what, actual doctrine or meaning that you can agree on? So Bootser says the body is with the bread. He sticks to the words, and he says, basically, if you can get to those words, you can get to a point of agreement. And Luther says, no, no, it's not the, in fact, it's not the actual words that you're using, but it's what you mean by those words. Right? Am I, am I with it? Absolutely. I mean, the Lutherans, like both Melanchthon and Luther, who signed this 1536 document, both went away not that happy with it and skeptical of how long it would last. And turns out they were right. Now, does the does the article offer? Because I think you and I would both say, well, no. If you just agree on the words, but you have different doctrine, that doesn't count. I mean, like for example, the I mean, it could be that when we go to the Mormon Church, they baptize in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. They use the same word that Jesus teaches in Matthew twenty-eight. But we say, hey, that doesn't count. You don't you don't have the same doctrine. You might use the same words, but you don't have the same teaching. If you have the same words, it's not enough. You have to have the same teaching, right? So you and I would look at that and say, well, obviously just the words that's that's a sham that's i mean almost the definition of hypocrisy uh how, how does it argue for the goodness of that of that approach i think by assertion i think it's simply saying this needs to be remembered it's it's trying to say that bootser was not um maybe this is important point bootser was not being disingenuous or snaky about this he he really thought that was the best formulation it was very precise uh, but, I mean, as, as that quote I read said, he was still not that worried if, after the fact, people had different understandings of those words. Uh, yeah, so this article is definitely arguing the Wittenberg Concord needs to be remembered. It was a fantastic and maybe surprising statement of unity, and I would say, and I think the Lutherans have viewed it as a statement of compromise, and therefore reaching unity. Uh, but but he thinks that's that's great, and um, this precision in your language, which means to come to a particular formulation that everyone can agree on, is much more important than uh, changing your formulations, you know, to fit what the point is or what the actual argument you're facing is. Hmm. And this is fantastic. I mean, Pastor Denzer, this is really a great gift that, uh, that you're given to us because, I mean, this is an important question for us to consider. I mean, j just as we live in this world and do theology because we feel this, we, we feel, and I think it's good and godly, as we said before, this, this, pre uh, this push towards uniting the church. It's one of the accusations that the devil will use. I, I was on this radio uh, atheist radio podcast the other day, and he said, um, "You know, how, if, what the Bible is, is so right. Why are there so many different? Why are there so many different churches? Why are there so many different denominations?" That, now, your verse that you quoted from First Corinthians answers that. There has to be divisions among you, but it's used as an accusation against the church. We all feel this press that the church would be one, but at but what cost? What can you give up for that unity? And th and this accusation goes back to the Reformation. You you you've got another. A couple quotes there to push us a little further on this. I think I think I'm done with my quotes. Oh, you want that other one? Well, I mean, there was one thing that haunted me in his uh, argument. Uh, before I get to that, though, I just got to say I think Jesus is gives great comfort for any of us who has, like my family, and I think everybody's family, a divided family over this most important thing: our confession of Jesus Christ. Uh, and forgive me, I forget where it is, but it's in Matthew, and Jesus says, right, anyone who who sticks with me, realize that I haven't come to bring peace but a sword. You know, I'm going to divide people, uh, and it's going to be as close as mother against daughter and father against son and so on. Um, and that's right after that is where he gives the passage that we all heard and, and, and understood.
understood at confirmation, right? Anyone who confesses me before men, I'll confess before my Father in heaven, right? And uh, and in fact, no matter what you've given up, right, uh, all you will receive plenty more, right, in the kingdom of God. Um, Jesus himself acknowledges the hardship, the pain of confession, and it all surrounds him, right? His words, cutting families apart sometimes, the sad divisions that we have, and we wish they would cease. Yeah. Uh, and yet, they're necessary, right? And and whoever acknowledges Jesus and even sticks with him, right, he's going to confess us before, I mean, before his father. He's say, hey, Dad, I know this guy, right? Um, oh, these are my, these are your beloved sons. These are my brothers here, right? Uh, what an amazing thing Jesus would say about us. This was, the accusation was brought to Luther. This, I mean, maybe, I wonder if anybody in the history of, uh, of the world felt this pressure more than Martin Luther because it was brought to him over and over again. It said, look, Luther, you're you're tearing the church apart. We used to be one church. And now, look, here you are sitting here in Wittenberg, the rat hole Wittenberg, bringing some new novel doctrine, and it's t- and it's ripping the church to shreds and and destroying the unity of the church. And you should not do that. You, you, it is too much of a price to pay, and so he had to. Luther himself, he had to. He had to face up to this, and he he writes about it. I'm thinking now here his Galatians commentary. He he brings this out directly. He said it, we are accused of destroying the unity of the church, and he says there are two things that destroy the unity of the church: there's sins against faith and sins against love. There's there. So in other words, as we sin against each other, and and. Um, and we and we don't love each other as we ought to do. The threat is a split in the church, and when that is, when that's the case, we ought to forgive and we ought to bear with one another. He he even says, "What it's it's the nature of love to be deceived." It's an incredible passage where he talks about we should never divide over sins of love, and yet when it comes to the doctrine, we have to divide. That's the re- that's the only reason the church can be split up is to preserve, to fight for, and preserve the truth. Of the teaching, there's, there's, there's nothing more valuable than love, except for faith, because faith is what brings us through this life to the life to come. The confession of Christ and the forgiveness of sins is what is what overcomes death and the devil for us and brings us to eternal life. And we would never, never dare to do anything that would threaten the unity of the church unless the faith, the doctrine, the saving work, is threatened. And then we say, we have to stick with the doctrine. Faith can't be deceived. Absolutely. Now you have this haunting verse, Pastor Denzer. You were gonna... yeah. The uh, so um, again, Bootser very interested in precise language, right? Very clear. This is exactly what I mean, and I've said it the way I meant it, right? Luther will use lots of phrases. For instance, in with and under. Neither of them maybe is totally good. Is is what Jesus says, but they're all fine ways in their own times to try and say the same thing that is means. And if you understand them as a synonym for is, you're just fine. Um, but then the the author of this article, Gordon Jensen, makes this statement. Words, and I think he means for Luther, can only point beyond themselves to the theological meaning, to God, something else. And here I'm haunted by this as he trying to say words are always up for grabs and really don't communicate anything at all. Uh, they're always just trying to symbolize something else that's outside of them. You understand the danger there, Pastor? Yeah, yeah. So, but push me a little further on this, so that. Well, I mean, there are definitely people who have said, you know, the Bible, for example, is a bunch of words, and words can't communicate anything. So that was maybe something that communicated in the past. 
but today it may not communicate at all. We should set the Bible aside and find other things that communicate. Uh, well, and there's your question again. How do we know what we're communicating if, if the scriptures themselves aren't even clear? That's amazing. It seems like, th- and this reminds me a little bit of the um, of the debate that Luther was having with uh, with Erasmus, where Erasmus was just was so afraid of assertions, and Luther has to come along and say, "Look, the Holy Spirit makes assertions." But there's sort of a there's a kind of a there's a strain of of doubt that runs through these guys all the way to the beginning. A strain of well, we can't actually be sure of what these things mean or words can't be pinned down with any sort of precision or um yeah so it's 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 almost a question of language and and th- and then the question is well how do you have how can you say that the scriptures are in fact clear if language itself ha- doesn't lacks the capacity to be clear i actually think this doctrine is one i mean this is a particular instance of of disagreement and the lord's supper continues to this day to be a huge divider between lutherans and protestants that we're usually lumped together with right um, and I think the difference is we are certainly talking about a great mystery here. How bread is body, as Jesus himself says, baffles the mind uh, because we have because that is that this is mysterious and a miraculous. This is not natural. Supernatural is the is the proper word for this. It's over and above what we see and observe. Um, but Luther it feels very comfortable and fine using all kinds of other words like in, with, and under at various times. Try and capture that, explain it, show it. But these words, these human words, absolutely are not saying it as well as is says it. And uh, I think that's the difference. Lutherans, uh, Christians, uh, take great comfort in words, uh, and sometimes they're the words directly out of the Bible. And sometimes, I mean, we do take comfort in the fact that the Holy Spirit is able to communicate through all languages, right? We don't have to go back to the original Greek in order to be saved. Uh, English will do just fine, thank goodness. Um, yet, uh, all of our human explanations are, I think these are our ways of saying the same thing, confessing in a new way. Those all are trying to point to what the scriptures themselves give primarily. What do you think about that, Pastor Wolf Miller? I think that's really fantastic. And, and we got to wind down here, Pastor Denzer. I really thank you for uh, for this insight and for bringing the article here. It's really uh, quite stunning and, and wonderful. And it and it reminds me, at least, that when when the Lord Jesus decides to take up human language, and not only to create, you know, to create the world, let there be light and so forth, but when he takes up human language to, to give us new life, to forgive our sins, to give us all the treasures of the kingdom of heaven, then language is exalted. And and Luther understood that, that that just like when Jesus became a human being, he exalted our human nature, and he sat on the right hand of the throne of God. So when Jesus takes up our language, to use it to bless us, to give us forgiveness of sins, to give us eternal life, then that then language has a glory that it never had before. And that glory, and for everyone listening to us, that glory is that you can hear these words, your sins are forgiven, and you can know what they mean. You can trust in them, and you can know that you're tr- that they're true. Pastor Denzer, thanks so much for being on Cross Defense. Pat, tell us the names of the church again. Trinity Lutheran in Great Bend and Peace Lutheran in Barney, North Dakota. And I'm Pastor Brian Wolfmuller of Hope Lutheran Church in Aurora, Colorado, joining you every Monday afternoon for Cross Defense to set our imagination on fire with the Lord's kindness. Just absolutely wonderful. And to consider the words of God and to consider that they're noble, that they're clear, that they're true, that they're good, that they're beautiful, that they are for us, and that they give us Christ and the light of eternal life, all that we need for this life and the life to come. 
Join us next week. We'll be doing it some more. God's peace be with you. Listening to Cross Defense, produced by Worldwide KFUO, the official broadcast ministry of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Your support is vital for this program to continue. To learn about giving opportunities, call Mary at 314 996 1518, or you can make a gift safe, secure, and easily online at KFUO.org. Thank you for listening and supporting Cross Defense on Worldwide KFUO.